our reading this evening is the epistle of Paul to Titus and chapter 1. That's Titus and chapter 1. And we commence at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto, and unto every good work reprobate. Amen. As ever, we trust that the Lord will have his own special blessings to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our first study in the epistle of Paul to Titus. We've already completed a study of Paul's two letters to Timothy, and as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often jointly referred to as the pastoral epistles, perhaps not only because they are addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as 
to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. Both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and we know that both of them had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus, to whom he's writing now on the island of Crete. And we know, do we not, from our previous studies that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in God's sight. Some men in leadership positions had departed from the truth. So it was very important that men like Timothy and Titus took a stand for the truth. Now it's believed that the epistle to Titus was written in between the first and second epistles to Timothy. And we shall see many similarities between what Paul wrote to both men. But first of all, let's see what we know about Titus from elsewhere in the New Testament scriptures. And what is most surprising is that we find no mention of him at all in the book of Acts. Luke doesn't mention him there at all. And so what we do know about him has to be pieced together from what Paul wrote in his epistle to him and the various times he is mentioned in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and the letter to the Galatians as well as the brief mention made of him when we considered the last chapter of the second letter to Timothy in our last study. In Galatians 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul wrote this. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so we see from that portion of scripture that Titus was a Gentile convert. And we see that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, where at the council convened to debate what we might call the Judaizing issue, Paul made such a defense of the gospel of God's grace. And then, if you turn to 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 13, we find there these words that Paul wrote. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit. Because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. And that shows us how disappointed Paul was not to have met up with Titus at Troas. Going to 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see how glad Paul was eventually to meet up with him in Macedonia. That's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6 of that chapter reads thus. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23, Paul wrote this. 
Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, showing us how highly Paul thought of Titus. And although we don't have time this evening to consider the precise detail, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 records how Titus had been entrusted with gathering collections from those in the church at Corinth for the relief of those poor saints who dwelt at Jerusalem. And so we see that Titus was a Gentile convert. We see that he was much loved of Paul, who considered him a partner and fellow helper. He was a man who could be entrusted with considerable sums of money and, more importantly, trusted with the care of the souls of God's people. And this is why Paul was writing to him, to encourage him in the work on Crete and to remind him that taking care of God's people involves keeping them safe from the false teaching of others. Now, we see that Paul starts off his letter in typical fashion. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. As we've observed before, Paul knew that his letters would invariably be read by others. And so he often wrote things for the sake of such others rather than just for the main recipient. Paul saw himself as a servant of God whose role was to seek to accomplish all that his master required of him. But others also needed to see him as someone who had been especially set apart by God, someone in whom God's authority was vested, an apostle. Paul's service and apostleship accorded perfectly with both the faith of God's chosen people and their acknowledgement of the truth of God, which alone promotes godliness. We read, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. The apostle was here obliquely stressing that all those on Crete who were true believers would by their new nature align themselves with Paul's teaching and against that false teaching which only promoted ungodliness. And we see how Paul took his stand on his hope of eternal life. He wrote, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, which hope inspired all of Paul's labours and which helped him to persevere. It was a certain hope of eternal life with Christ and his church in heaven that kept Paul going on earth. And can we not say that that should be true of us as well? We're only in this world for a finite amount of time and though it may be easier for those of us here this evening who are older to appreciate the brevity of life, we all 
need to be able to compare our lifespan with eternity so that we can get things into perspective. For instance, if you know that you will be staying somewhere for two days and then you're going to somewhere else for 25 years, what would you most concentrate your efforts on preparing for? Now, as we'll see later, Christians had a reputation for lying, but one who cannot lie had promised eternal life to believers before the world began. Paul wrote, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, there are many scriptures which show us that God planned the salvation of his people before the world began, and we considered one such scripture when we studied 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 tells of how God, and I quote, hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. As we can see from the Old Testament scriptures, little by little God revealed his plan of salvation through a saviour yet to come, and now that Christ had come, God had entrusted the preaching of the gospel of his grace to men such as Paul. And thus Paul could say of God that he, and I quote, hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. As it were, he had a royal warrant to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ as opposed to those self-appointed purveyors of lies. Now, you may know that the royal family in this country issues warrants to those who supply them with goods or services. And such royal warrants entitle the various suppliers to use the words by appointment to on their products and their swear. Well, maybe we can imagine that Paul had such an endorsement, as have all those whom God calls to preach the gospel on his behalf. It's a great privilege to be entrusted with the preaching of the gospel and woe unto those who neglect it or pervert it. As I said at the outset, Paul regarded both Timothy and Titus as his sons in the faith. And we see how this was true of Titus in verse 4 of the chapter we're studying where Paul wrote these words. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. Many feel that this shows us that Titus was converted as a result of Paul's ministry and when Paul writes of a common faith, he's to, referring to the true faith that they had in common as opposed to the counterfeit faith of others. Paul was very fond of Titus and he desired that Titus should be blessed with all spiritual blessings from God the Father and God the Son. Well, you may have noticed at the end of verse 3, we see Paul refer to God our Saviour. And that here at the end of verse 4, he refers to Christ 
our Saviour. And thus we see the work of salvation attributed to both Father and Son, which is not in any way to minimise the role of God the Holy Spirit, whose role in salvation is recorded elsewhere, but serves to show us the unity of the Godhead in our salvation. But now we come to Titus's commission from the Lord on the Isle of Crete as given to him by Paul. And we can see straightway that Titus had been given a big job to do. Paul wrote this. For this cause I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Titus was to be a sort of troubleshooter, put in right in the churches those things which were wrong, setting in order things that were disordered, things that were lacking. And this would involve practical changes as well as spiritual change. God wants fellowships of believers to be organised and not disorganised, to be properly run both for the glory of God and for the benefit of his people. If ever you come across a disorganised church, then you can be fairly certain that it's not being run in a way that is pleasing to God. Now we see that Titus was commissioned to make sure that every true church in every city on the island of Crete was to be run by suitably qualified men. Now, Crete occupies an area of over 3,200 square miles, about one and a quarter times the size of Devon. So there would presumably have been many individual fellowships in cities throughout the island. And each fellowship needed its own leaders, elders, who would be set in place to oversee the work. Paul had delegated to Titus this job of ordaining men to this work of oversight men who had the right qualities, especially that of being doctrinally sound. When we studied Paul's first letter to Timothy, we saw in chapter 3 a list of those qualities required in elders. And that list is repeated substantially here in Titus chapter 1. Paul wrote this, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exalt and to convince the gainsayers. As we've noted previously, the terms bishop, elder and also presbyter are largely interchangeable. Paul refers to the church leaders as elders in verse 5 and bishops in verse 7. The underlying Greek words are different but their leadership role is the same. And even though we've previously looked at the qualities God requires in elders, it will nonetheless profit us to reconsider them, though perhaps more briefly this time. Firstly then, 
an elder must be blameless or unimpeachable, as is to be expected in someone who is a steward of the household of God. The Greek word translated as blameless is a word which could be translated as not able to be held, not able to be arrested on criminal charges, as it were. And it's only men of unblemished character who can be considered for leadership. And any elder who commits grave sin should be removed from eldership. An elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, we saw previously that this qualification has been the subject of much debate and is viewed in different ways, even amongst those who are in what we might call the reform camp. Some believe that an elder should be a married man, since they feel that only a married man can understand the problems that married couples can face, including problems bringing up children. Some folks say that only a married man can fulfill the qualification of ruling his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. However, we know that a widower who chooses not to remarry can do both these things, though some feel that this verse and the parallel verse in 1 Timothy teaches that a widower couldn't remarry and be an elder. As I've said before, to my mind this is wrong, as is the suggestion that single men shouldn't be in the ministry. We know that Paul was a single man. We know that from his first epistle to the Corinthians. So bachelorhood should be no bar to leadership. Contrarywise, we must stress that bachelorhood is not compulsory in the ministry as is falsely taught by the Roman Catholics. What about polygamy? Is Paul saying here that an elder must be monogamous? Well, that's certainly a possibility, so some feel that polygamy wasn't much in vogue at that time. And what about divorced men? Can they be elders? If divorce is permitted by the scriptures and the innocent party is truly innocent, why would a, a divorced man be precluded from leadership? As we saw when we studied 1 Timothy, the answer to what Paul was driving at may be found in the Greek words translated here as the husband of one wife, which could be literally translated as a one-woman man. Those in leadership who are married must be faithful to their wives, forsaking all others. Now, sexual impurity was common in Crete, and it was vital that any church leader should be above reproach. And it's the same in our own day. Any sexual impropriety can ruin a man's ministry, and the fallout from such things can severely damage the fellowships in which they have ministered. All leaders must be one-woman men. And any man who fails this test disqualifies himself from the ministry. An elder, we read, must have faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. And we can compare this with what Paul wrote to Timothy, namely that an elder must be someone, and I quote, that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? 
Unruly children are a sure sign that a man isn't qualified to be an elder. If a man can't keep his own children under control, then how can he be expected to lead and guide the children of God in a fellowship? And it's also implied here that an elder's wife must be in subjection to him. For if a man had his children in subjection with all gravity, but had a wife who was unwilling to be subject to him, this would surely disqualify him from a leadership role also. Now an elder mustn't be self-willed, meaning that his concern must ever be to please God rather than himself. And he mustn't have a bad temper whereby he becomes easily angry. And this isn't speaking here of that righteous anger that we may feel when the glory of God is at stake, but rather that quick-temperedness which can ruin any witness if it's left unchecked. And here in Titus we see that an elder must be, must, mustn't be given to wine. And that expression, not given to wine, has been hotly debated, as has the expression, not given to much wine, which is a qualification for deacons. And believers are split into two main camps when it comes to what the Bible teaches about the consumption of alcohol. On the one hand, there are those who believe that the Bible teaches that all believers should be completely teetotal. On the other hand, there are those who believe that the Bible only condemns drinking to excess, notwithstanding that some in that latter camp choose of their own volition not to drink alcohol in any event. My personal view, which I may have expressed before, is that although the scripture speaks very much about the dangers of alcohol, it does not condemn its consumption out of hand. And so it seems to me to be appropriate that churches shouldn't insist that any elder should be fully teetotal. You see, we shouldn't go beyond what the scripture lays down. But we must insist that it would be wrong for any elder to be habitually associated with strong drink, for any elder, as it were, to have a reputation as a drinker. I know of a situation at a London church where an elder had become associated with drink, and that caused great problems in his fellowship. Now, when we studied 1 Timothy, we noted that the translators of the authorised version offered an alternative rendering to not given to wine, namely not ready to quarrel, to quarrel and offer wrong as one in wine. I'll read that again, not ready to quarrel and offer wrong as one in wine. Perhaps linking this with what comes next in both epistles, no striker. No striker. Well, you know, it may be hard for us to conceive of any elder getting involved in fisticuffs. But the very fact that Paul says that an elder must be no striker reminds us that arguments must be settled with words and not with blows. The situations both in Ephesus and Crete may have been such that heated arguments were not uncommon but it can never be appropriate for elders to lose control. Elders must be patient, not brawlers. And this is confirmed in Paul's second letter to Timothy 
in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where Paul wrote this. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, in both epistles, following on from the requirement that an elder mustn't be a striker, is the requirement that he also mustn't be greedy of or given to filthy lucre. Those whom God calls to lead his people should consider themselves honoured to have been so called. There should be no question of any man being in the ministry for the money, for financial reward. So whenever you see a minister expecting a lavish lifestyle, you can be fairly confident that he is not a man called of God. Elders, we see, must be lovers of hospitality, meaning that they have a reputation for offering hospitality as appropriate. And the original Greek conveys here a sense of loving strangers. For it's easy, is it not, to be hospitable to those we know and love, and hospitality is a virtue which is to be commended in all God's people, not just leaders. Elders must be lovers of all that is good, including good men and women, and they must be sober, just, holy and temperate. Elders are to be sober or prudent, meaning not that they are to be cold and humorless, but that they can be relied upon to be serious-minded whenever appropriate, particularly with regard to spiritual and other weighty matters. Elders are to be just, they are to be fair and impartial. They are to be godly and devout men. They are to be temperate, always in control of themselves. Now the final qualification for eldership is given in verse 9 of the chapter we're looking at tonight. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exalt and to convince the gainsayers. There were men on Crete who had been faithfully taught and it was only those who could be relied upon to hold fast to that faithful teaching who should be considered for eldership. In our own day, we have seen a decline in churches, have we not? We see situations where men have opted to depart from the faithful word in the hope of increasing their congregations. Now we must always remember that we are called to be faithful, not successful at all costs, and that we will be more blessed of God in a relatively small fellowship which holds fast to the faithful word than in a larger fellowship where sound teaching has been, as it were, sacrificed with the intent of attracting larger numbers of people, albeit those who may lack discernment. It's a great blessing, you know, for any fellowship if they can be sure that what they are going to be taught is sound doctrine. Doctrine is very important. And those churches who have disdained doctrine are asking for trouble. Now, it's true that real Christian love is more important than doctrine. We know that from 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. But that's not to say 
that doctrine is to be deemed to be of secondary importance. Ministers holding to the faithful word will use that word to encourage the saints in sound doctrine and to refute the false arguments and teaching of such as oppose the truth. So we have once again seen the qualities required in those who are to serve as elders and perhaps we have realised again how difficult it is for any man to meet such searching requirements but God is able to raise up men to do his work. And Titus, we see, was given the task of identifying and ordaining suitable men on Crete. Men were needed who would stand up for the truth, as Paul pointed out, because there were opponents who were unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy Lucas' sake. And the remainder of the chapter we're looking at this evening is taken up with further details of those opponents of the gospel. They're described as unruly, vain talkers, of a rebellious spirit, bereft of the truth. All that they did was deceitful, leading people astray. And it appears that those most guilty of this were Jewish, they of the circumcision. Very likely they were Judaizers who needed to be prevented from having a poisonous effect on whole households. They were false teachers driven by greed, by their desire for money, for filthy lucre. And Titus was charged with silence in any who spread such poison within the churches. Now, the Christians had a reputation for being economical with the truth. Paul was aware of this and he quoted the words of a Christian whose name is believed to be Epimenides, a man regarded by other Cretans as a sort of prophet. Epimenides has said this, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And Paul accounted that to be an accurate description of the islander, saying, this witness is true. Well, in our own politically correct society, we couldn't get away with saying something like that today, could we? But is it not true that certain races do seem to have national characteristics? With regard to the Cretans, what one of their own had written about them must have been true since Paul said so. And Paul went on to say this, Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Titus was to deal firmly with any within the churches whose teaching was undermining the truth not pussyfooting around. He was to sharply rebuke those in error, showing us that there will be times when such drastic action is warranted. Those who lead God's people are to be meek, but they are not to be weak. And they mustn't shy away from firm action when that is necessary. They're not to relish disciplinary action in any way, but to see it as a necessary part of their remit. And when rebuking believers who have gone astray, it should always be with the intention of restoring them, if possible. Which is why Paul wrote this, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, 
that turn from the truth. When we studied Paul's letters to Timothy, we saw him refer to such things as old wives' tables, fables rather, and genealogies, profane and vain babblings, all manner of vain conversation and falsehoods which were not to be put up with. And we see something similar here, do we not? Over the years, the Jews have built up a collection of writings in addition to the Old Testament scriptures, some of which were mystical. And these writings, together with what we might term rabbinical traditions, had great influence in Jewish society, not just in Paul's day, but ever since. You may recall that the Lord Jesus himself spoke against the tradition of the Jews and pointed out how the tradition of the Jews had taken precedence over the word of God. And presumably it was both mystical and Judaistic teaching that Paul was speaking against here. Now the commandments of men are alive and well today and we need to be able to distinguish between that which is taught in the word of God and that which is of man's invention, irrespective of how plausible it might seem. The Christian life is hard enough without being burdened with unnecessary sanctions. We are to be, well, we are to take great care to be obedient to what the scripture teaches so that we may please God, but we are not to be constrained by the commandments of men. Paul told Titus this, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Well, if you turn to Mark's Gospel, to Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, and commencing at verse 1, you'll find there these words. That's Mark 7, commencing at verse 1. Then came together unto him, that is the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washings of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, that is the Lord Jesus, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well, ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And if you go a bit further on in that chapter, looking at verses 14 onwards, we have these words. When he, that is the Lord Jesus, had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, 
hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without the man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. As I just said, those who are pure in heart and mind will have a pure perspective on all things. But conversely, we see this. Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, by the grace of God, believers are pure in heart. But unbelievers cannot be so. John Calvin wrote this. Since in God's sight there is no purity apart from faith, it follows that all believers are all, all unbelievers are all unclean. Thus they will not obtain the cleanness they desire by any laws or regulations for, being themselves impure, nothing in the world can be pure to them. That's uh, what John Calvin thought. Unbelievers are impure in both mind and conscience. All their thoughts and deeds are thus of necessity affected by inner defilement. Now, how can we tell if someone is a true believer? If someone professes to know God, if they profess to know God, does that make them a believer? Well, the answer must be no. As Paul refers here to some who profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. As we saw when we studied 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, Paul wrote of men, and I quote, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There are men who may at first sight seem to be spiritual, but whose behaviour indicates that they have never, never undergone that life-changing experience that makes a man want to serve and to please God. Such men do not witness to the power of God in their lives, but to the fact that they cannot have been converted, both because of the doctrine that they espouse and by the lifestyles that they follow. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. And we see that God accounts them as abominable or detestable, living in opposition to him, and unable to do anything pleasing to him, unto every good work reprobate. They stand condemned by God, and their eventual judgment will be terrible. Well, we've reached the end of our first study in the epistle to Titus, and we continue to see, do we not, how important it is that the church is led by men qualified for the task those who are able by sound doctrine both to exalt and convince the gainsayers. And we also continue to see the danger posed by false teachers even within the church. And we are to be on our guard against the introduction of any teaching that is contrary to God's word. Well, may the Lord help us all to appreciate true servants of the Lord and to recognise those who profess that they know God but in works they deny him. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. 
Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.